Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Center for New American Dream, Redacted Tonight with comedian Lee Camp, The David Pakman Show, RSA Animate, The Story of Stuff Project, The National Sierra Club, Buzz Poe, Jim Hightower, and TED Talks. Every day, Americans are bombarded with hundreds of messages suggesting that the good life is attainable through the goods life by making lots of money and spending it on products that claim to make us happy, loved, and esteemed. On the news shows, we hear a near-constant refrain from economists and politicians about the importance of consumer spending and economic growth. And around $150 billion are spent most years to embed consumer messages in every conceivable space, from TV shows and websites to public bathrooms and escalator handrails. Lately, marketers have even been paying actors to drop sales pitches into conversations in bars and city parks. But commercialization and consumerism also reach deeper, worming their way into people's psyches and encouraging them to organize their lives around higher salaries and owning more stuff. Unfortunately, this can come at a high price for the well-being of both people and the planet. Research consistently shows that the more that people value materialistic aspirations and goals, the lower their happiness and life satisfaction, and the fewer pleasant emotions they experience day to day. Depression, anxiety, and substance abuse also tend to be higher among people who value the aims encouraged by consumer society. Strong materialistic values also influence our social relationships, and thereby affect other people's well-being. Scientists have found that materialistic values and pro-social values are like a seesaw, as materialistic values go up, pro-social values tend to go down. This helps explain why people act in less empathic, generous, and cooperative ways when money is on their minds. When people are under the sway of materialism, they also focus less on caring for the earth. The same type of seesaw is at work here. As materialistic values go up, concern for nature tends to go down. Studies show that when people strongly endorse money, image, and status, they are less likely to engage in ecologically beneficial activities like riding bikes, recycling, and reusing things in new ways. Clearly, if we hope to have a happier, more socially just, and more ecologically sustainable world, then we need to develop ways to diminish the power of materialistic values in our personal lives and in society. Two basic principles for change can help frame the way forward. First, we need to understand what causes people to prioritize materialistic values. For instance, studies show that people focus more on material things when they feel insecure. So instead of buying a new handbag or power tool the next time you've had a blow to your self-esteem, consider a different coping strategy, like spending time with friends or taking a walk outside. Scientists also know that the more that people are exposed to the media, the more they prioritize materialistic values. A couple of ways to diminish the onslaught of consumer messages are to use adblock to hide ads on the Internet or to hit mute when commercials play on TV. But these steps can only take us so far. We also need to get active and start to remove advertising from public spaces and from our children's schools so that people aren't exposed to materialistic messages so often. The second principle for change involves promoting intrinsic values for growing as a person, being close to one's family and friends, and improving the broader world. The research shows that intrinsic values not only promote personal, social, and ecological well-being, but can also act to immunize people against materialism. 
It's that seesaw again. As intrinsic values go up, materialistic values tend to go down. So part of the trick is to build a life that expresses your intrinsic values. That might involve spending more time with people you care about, finding meaningful work, even if it pays less, and taking part in volunteer opportunities for causes you care about. But again, changing our lifestyles is not enough. We also need to advocate for policies that promote intrinsic values. For example, countries like France and Bhutan have recognized that they can't only focus on GDP and other measures of economic growth. Now they are starting to regularly assess citizens' well-being and sense of connection to their communities so as to develop policies that truly encourage these intrinsic values. Similar efforts are underway in some parts of the United States, but they need more support. The grip that consumerism and commercialism have on our world can seem inescapable, and there are certainly powerful forces that push materialistic values on us. But by making changes in our personal lives and by working for broader societal changes, we can break the hold of materialism and be freer to live our intrinsic values. That, in turn, would help us to take important steps toward greater personal well-being, a more humane society, and a more sustainable world. Make me feel alive, I want to shout it from the rooftop And tell the world that I was blind, but now I see it's right in front of me It's a beautiful world, I see Everything's differently It's a beautiful world, I see Moments are changing me When I look at the sky I see the reason why I So you go into Starbucks or Target or any store, really, and they tell you how much you're doing for the world by consuming, by purchasing lots of very important craptastic merchandise, right? You find out that for every bottle of water you buy, 10% goes to help the children of Honduras. The coffee beans help send Ethiopian kids to school. Or the yogurt you grabbed will help a Scandinavian teenager afford a trip to a strip club or whatever. You know, 20% of your coffee cup was made from recycled coffee copies of original Shakespeare manuscripts, whatever the f***. And it, does, and it makes you feel a little better, right? A little better about this ferocious, insatiable consumerism we all partake in. We think, I'm doing my part. But what if it's acting as a release valve for a much-needed guilt about our runaway consumerism that's destroying lives around the world? Maybe we're only okay with living like this because the Honduran kids are holding our hands. It's okay that we're using up all the fresh water because I bought eggs that came from free-range happy chickens, all right? The chickens were singing f***ing Good Day Sunshine and skipping down the street. They were giving their eggs away just to show, just to show thanks to the farmer for letting them live it up. They were like, please, please take the eggs. Take the eggs. It's the least we can do, all right, for this goddamn Garden of Eden you've set up for us. And sometimes you think, well, if buying a bottle of water helps the Honduran kids, maybe I should get two bottles of water, right? Maybe, maybe really help them out. But of course, then you're doubling the environmental harm that's being done, so maybe four bottles, four bottles, or eight bottles, right? That, that's the only way to fix this messed up situation. Then you get home with a pallet of 200 bottles of water. You've killed half a million children and a few dozen whales, but at least you feel a little better about yourself. My point is, maybe, just maybe, the world would be a lot better off if you walked into Starbucks and there was a big banner that just said, buy our coffee, f*** 
the Honduran kids. <laughs> what have they done for you? That's just, just right there, big sign. Pumpkin frappuccinos are back and f the kids. <laughs> Maybe we'd be better off. The U.S. is 5% of the world's population, but we eat 15% of the world's meat, use 20% of the world's energy, and create a whopping 40% of the world's garbage. It's mostly pop music. Still, <laughs> still, it's okay, because for every pair of Tom's shoes you buy, they give an entire pair to somebody in Africa. And that does sound great, because I'm sure Africans love to dress like pretentious white Americans. They, they, they just carry tennis, around, tennis rackets around, just, just because, just because. If I hadn't tripped over that, it would have been very funny. And are the shoes actually getting to the people who really need them? How, how do we know there aren't just piles of Toms in the middle of the Congo, where everyone already has shoes but needs food, and they're just dealing with like a natural disaster? Oh yeah, every Tuesday, shoes just rain down, and we gather them up and put them into a big shoe mountain. You know, avalanche last month killed 62 people. Okay, I might be wrong. Maybe Toms do get to the needy people. I don't know. But my point, which I borrowed from philosopher Slavoj Žižek, is that in our modern ravenous capitalism, we don't just buy a product. We also have to buy our redemption from partaking in this unsustainable consumerism. Redemption songs. Redemption songs. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book. I've had several conversations uh, over the last couple of months with people outside of the show, but we've also talked about on the show about uh, the work week, weekends, vacation time, productivity, and study after study has told us that, number one, life satisfaction increases significantly when people have vacation time, but number two, that productivity at work also increases when people have vacation time. Thus, it would really be logical for employers to encourage the usage of vacation time. But we now have a very interesting new study from 2014, which tells us that uh, we know, so to set the, the, the background, in many countries, there is significantly more vacation time provided by full-time employers than here in the U.S. In the U.S., the average is 10 days of paid vacation time, which if you think about two five-day work weeks, is a couple of weeks of vacation time per year. A new study now tells us that only 13% of Americans traveled abroad for a vacation from August 2013 through August of 2014. But in addition, that almost half of all Americans did not take a single day off in the summer of 2014, and that 63% of Americans didn't travel at all from September of 2013 to September of 2014. Skift has a new survey on the matter, and the numbers are even bleaker. 41% of Americans, Lewis, 41%, 4 out of 10, took no vacation days at all in 2014. Uh, this is bad, and this is bad not only because when you ask some of these employees, why didn't you take vacation time, they said, you know, 
I have the vacation time available, but I really am worried that when I leave, my job will be assigned to someone else and the company will realize they don't really need me and I might lose my job. So fear of losing your job is a significant factor for many people in not taking vacation time. And the problem is that this actually hurts employee productivity as well as morale and general life satisfaction. I guess there's nothing you can do if, if uh, you are afraid that your job will be lost or that things will change if you go on, on a, a vacation or a lengthy vacation. Well, what's uh, interesting about that is it tells us a lot about people's own perceptions of their value at work. And I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, I really don't do that much at work. I mean, I, I kind of push paper around. I come in. Uh, I come in 15 minutes late and then uh, check my email and then I go and grab a coffee in the kitchen and I kind of just browse Reddit and Facebook for a couple of hours. We have a meeting at 11.30 and then I go to lunch and then I file some papers for a couple of hours in the afternoon. And the reality is when I worked in most office type jobs, uh, I could get my full day of work done in 90 minutes at the most. I mean, it, to, to, with no exaggeration whatsoever, Lewis. And, of course, this doesn't apply to nearly all jobs, but there are many jobs within this kind of corporate hierarchical structure that fall into this. That is true. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think that they're going to wake up and realize this is what's happening when one person takes a vacation. But we have to be careful here because we don't want to turn into, uh, into Japan uh, where we start using the word karoshi and we have people working themselves to death. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it, it's a dangerous route we're taking here. And it's going to become increasingly dangerous as automation, as we talked about yesterday, replaces more human activities because this fear of what am I supposed to be doing and am I going to get fired will certainly and legitimately uh, be, be a very real thing. But we should not sacrifice vacation time because of this. It's bad for everybody. Our motivations are unbelievably interesting. I mean, it, I, I find I've been working on this for a few years, and I just find the topic still so amazingly engaging and, and interesting. So I want to tell you about that. The science is really surprising. The science is a little bit freaky. Okay, it, we are not as endlessly manipulable and as predictable as you would think. There's a whole set of unbelievably interesting studies. I want to give you two that call into question this idea that if you reward something you get more of the behavior you want. If you punish something, you get less of it. So let's talk, let's go from London to the mean streets of Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the northeastern part of the United States. And let's talk about a study done at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Here's what they did. They took a whole group of students, and they gave them a set of challenges, things like um, memorizing strings of digits, uh, solving word puzzles, other kinds of spatial puzzles, even physical tasks like throwing a ball through a hoop. Okay, they gave them these challenges, and they said to incentivize their performance, they gave them three levels of rewards. Okay? So if you did pretty well, you got a small monetary reward. If you did medium well, you got a medium monetary reward. And if you did really well, if you were one of the top performers, you got a large cash prize. Okay? We've seen this movie before. This is essentially a typical motivation scheme within organizations. Right? We reward the very top performers. We ignore the low performers and the folks kind of in the middle. Okay, you get a little bit. So what happens? They do the test. They have these incentives. Here's what they found out. One, 
As long as the task involved only mechanical skill, bonuses worked as they would be expected. The higher the pay, the better their performance. Okay, that makes sense. But here's what happens. But once the task called for even rudimentary cognitive skill, a larger reward led to poorer performance. Now, this is strange, right? A larger reward led to poorer performance? How can that possibly be? Now, what's interesting about this is that these folks here who, who, who did this are all economists, at, at, two at MIT, one at the University of Chicago, one at Carnegie Mellon, okay, the top tier of the economics profession. And they're reaching this conclusion that seems contrary to what a lot of us learned in economics, which is, which is that the higher the reward, the better their performance. And they're saying that once you get above rudimentary cognitive skill, it's the other way around which seems like this kind of, the idea that these rewards don't work that way seems vaguely left-wing and socialist, doesn't it? It's kind of this kind of weird socialist conspiracy. For those of you who have those conspiracy theories, I want to point out the, so, the notoriously left-wing socialist group that financed the research, the Federal Reserve Bank. So this is the mainstream of the mainstream coming to a conclusion that's quite surprising, seems to defy the laws of behavioral physics. So this is strange, a strange finding. So what do they do? They say, let's, this, is, this is freaky. Let's go test it somewhere else. Maybe that $50 or $60 prize isn't sufficiently motivating for an MIT student, right? So let's go to a place where $50 is actually more significant relatively. All right, so let's take the experiment. We're going to go to Madurai, India, rural India, where $50, $60, whatever the number was, is actually a significant sum of money. So they replicated the experiment in India roughly as follows. Small rewards, the equivalent of two weeks' salary, um, I mean, sorry, uh, small performance, low performance, two-week salary, medium performance, about a month's salary, um, high performance, about two months' salary. Okay, so those are real good incentives, okay? So you're going to get a different result here. Well, what happened, though, was that the people offered the medium reward did no better than the people offered the small reward. But this time around, the people offered the top reward. They did worst of all. Higher incentives led to worse performance. What's interesting about this is that it actually isn't all that anomalous. This has been replicated over and over and over again by psychologists, by um, some extent by sociologists, uh, and by economists, over and over and over again. For simple, straightforward tasks, those kinds of incentives, if you do this, then you get that, they're great. For tasks that are algorithmic, set of rules where you have to just follow along and get a right answer, if then rewards, carrots and sticks, outstanding. But when the task gets more complicated, when it requires some conceptual creative thinking, those kinds of motivators demonstrably don't work. In fact, money is a motivator um, at work, but in a slightly strange way. If you don't pay people enough, they won't be motivated. What's curious about, there's another paradox here, which is that the best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. Pay people enough so that they're not thinking about money and they're thinking about the work. Now, once you do that, it turns out there are three factors that the science shows lead to better performance, um, not to mention personal satisfaction. <laughs> Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy is our desire to be self-directed, to direct our own lives. Now, in many ways, traditional notions of management run afoul of that. Management is great if you want compliance, but if you want engagement, which is what we want in the workforce today as people are doing more complicated, sophisticated things, self-direction is better. Let me give you some examples of this, of almost radical forms of self-direction in the workplace that lead to good results. Let's start with this company right here, Atlassian, an Australian company. It's a software company, and they do something really cool. Once a quarter on a, a Thursday afternoon, 
They say to their developers, for the next 24 hours, you can work on anything you want. You can work on it the way you want. You can work on it with whomever you want. All we ask is that you show the results to the company at the end of those 24 hours in this fun kind of meeting, not a star chamber session, but this fun meeting with beer and cake and fun and other things like that. It turns out that that one day of pure, undiluted autonomy has led to a whole array of fixes for existing software, a whole array of ideas for new products that otherwise had never emerged. One day. Now, this is not an if-then incentive. This is not the sort of thing that I would have done three years ago before I knew this research. I would have said, you want people to be creative and innovative? Give them a freaking innovation bonus. If you can do something cool, I'll give you $2,500. They're not doing this at all. They're essentially saying, you probably want to do something interesting. Let me just get out of your way. One day of autonomy produces things that had never emerged. Right, let's talk about mastery. Mastery is our urge to get better at stuff. We like to get better at stuff. This is why people play musical instruments on the weekend. You have all these people who are acting in ways that seem irrational economically. They play musical instruments on weekends. Why? It's not going to get them a mate. It's not going to make them any money. Why are they doing it? Because it's fun. Because you get better at it, and that's satisfying. Go back in time a little bit. Imagine, I imagine this if I went to my first economics professor, a woman named Mary Alice Shulman. And I went to her in 1983 and said, Professor Shulman, can I talk to you after class for a moment? Yeah. Just, I got this inkling. I got this idea for a business model. I just want to run it past you. Here's how it would work. You get a bunch of people around the world who are doing highly skilled work, but they're willing to do it for free and volunteer their time, 20, sometimes 30 hours a week. Okay, she's looking at you somewhat skeptically there. Oh, but I'm, but I'm not done. And then what they create they give it away rather than sell it. It's going to be huge. I mean, she, would have, she truly would have thought I was insane. Okay? It seemed to fly in the face of so many things. But what do you have? You have Linux powering one out of four corporate servers in Fortune 500 companies, Apache powering uh, more than the majority of web servers, uh, Wikipedia. What's going on? Why are, why are people doing this? Why are, they, why are these people, many of whom are technically sophisticated, highly skilled people who have jobs, Okay? They have jobs. They're working at jobs for pay, doing challenging, doing sophisticated techno technological work. And yet, during their limited discretionary time, they do equally, if not more, technically sophisticated work, not for their employer, but for someone else for free. That's a strange economic behavior. Economists who look into it, why are they doing this? It's overwhelmingly clear. Challenge and mastery, along with making a contribution. That's it. What you see more and more is a rise of what you might call the purpose motive, is that more and more organizations want to have some kind of transcendent purpose, partly because it makes coming to work better, partly because that's the way to get better talent. Um, and what we're seeing now is, in some ways, when the profit motive becomes unmoored from the purpose motive, uh, bad things happen. Bad things ethically sometimes, but also bad things just like not good stuff, like crappy products, like lame services, like uninspiring places to work, that when the profit motive is, is, is paramount or when it becomes completely unhitched from the purpose motive, it's just people don't do great things. More and more organizations are, are realizing this and, and sort of disturbing the categories between what's profit and what's, and what's purpose. And, and I think that that actually heralds something interesting. And I think that the companies that organizations that are flourishing, whether they're profit, for profit, or somewhere in between, are, are, are animated by this purpose motive. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's the founder of Skype. 
He says, our goal is to be disruptive, but in the cause of making the world a better place. Pretty good purpose. Here's Steve Jobs. I want to put a ding in the universe. All right? That's the kind of thing that might get you up in the morning and ra racing to go to work. So I think that, um, that we are purpose maximizers, not only profit maximizers. I think the science shows that we care about mastery very, very deeply. Uh, and the science shows that we want to be self-directed. And I think that the, the big takeaway here is that if we start treating people like people and not assuming that they're simply horses, you know, slower, smaller, better smelling horses, uh, if we get past this kind of ideology of carrots and sticks and look at the science, um, I think we can actually build organizations and work lives that make us better off, but I also think they have the promise to make our world just a little bit better. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional websites and online portfolios. And with that in mind, I think it's pretty clear that we are living in a golden age of creativity and self-expression. There are more tools at our disposal and fewer gatekeepers standing in our way than ever before. And this doesn't just mean that the quote-unquote creative people can be more successful. It means that more and more people can be inspired to be creative. And Squarespace is one of those tools helping make it happen. If you've got an idea, a passion, a business, or anything else that deserves to be seen, then allow the amazing accessibility of tools like Squarespace to inspire you to action because there's almost nothing standing in your way anymore. They have great templates and a drag and drop design philosophy so that anyone at any skill level will be able to make a great looking website. If you're ready to give them a try, you can do a free trial for 14 days with no credit card. Once you're ready to dive in, everything starts at an amazingly low $8 a month and you can take an additional 10% off of that when you sign up using the offer code LEFT. If you sign up for a year, you get 10% off the full year as well as a free domain. So try them out today and use the offer code LEFT at checkout when you sign up to save yourself some cash and to show your support for this show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. problems with trying to use less stuff is that sometimes we feel like we really need it. What if you live in a city like, say, Cleveland, and you want a glass of water? Are you going to take your chances and get it from the city tap? Or should you reach for a bottle of water that comes from the pristine rainforest of Fiji? Well, Fiji brand water thought the answer to this question was obvious, so they built a whole ad campaign around it. It turned out to be one of the dumbest moves in advertising history. You see, the city of Cleveland didn't like being the butt of Fiji's jokes, so they did some tests, and guess what? These tests showed a glass of Fiji water is lower quality, it loses taste tests against Cleveland Tap, and costs thousands of times more. This story is typical of what happens when you test bottled water against tap water. Is it cleaner? Sometimes, sometimes not. In many ways, bottled water is less regulated than tap. Is it tastier? In taste tests across the country, people consistently choose tap over bottled water. These bottled water companies say they're just meeting consumer demand. But who would demand a less sustainable, less tasty, way more expensive product, especially one you can get for almost free in your kitchen? Bottled water costs about 2,000 times more than tap water. Can you imagine paying 2,000 times the price of anything else? How about a $10,000 sandwich? Yet people in the U.S. buy more than half a billion bottles of water every week. That is enough to circle the globe more than five times. How did 
things come to be? Well, it all goes back to how our materials economy works and one of its key drivers, which is known as manufactured demand. If companies want to keep growing, they have to keep selling more and more stuff. In the 1970s, giant soft drink companies got worried as they saw their growth projections starting to level off. There's only so much soda a person can drink. Plus, it wouldn't be long before people began realizing soda is not that healthy and turned back to, gasp, drinking tap water. Well, the companies found their next big idea in a silly designer product that most people laughed off as a passing yuppie fad. Water is free, people said back then. What will they sell us next? Air? So how do you get people to buy this fringe product? Simple. You manufacture demand. How do you do that? Well, imagine you're in charge of a bottled water company. Since people aren't lining up to trade their hard-earned money for your unnecessary product, you make them feel scared and insecure if they don't have it. And that's exactly what the bottled water industry did. One of their first marketing tactics was to scare people about tap water with ads like Fiji's Cleveland campaign. When we're done, one top water executive said, tap water will be relegated to showers and washing dishes. Next, you hide the reality of your product behind images of pure fantasy. Have you ever noticed how bottled water tries to seduce us with pictures of mountain streams and pristine nature? But guess where a third of all bottled water in the U.S. actually comes from? The tap. Pepsi's Aquafina and Coke's Dasani are two of the many brands that are really filtered tap water. But the pristine nature lie goes much deeper. In a recent full-page ad, Nestle said, Bottled water is the most environmentally responsible consumer product in the world. What? They are trashing the environment all along the product's life cycle. Exactly how is that environmentally responsible? The problems start here with extraction and production, where oil is used to make water bottles. Each year, making the plastic water bottles used in the U.S. takes enough oil and energy to fuel a million cars. All that energy spent to make the bottle, even more to ship it around the planet, and then we drink it in about two minutes? That brings us to the big problem at the other end of the life cycle, disposal. What happens to all these bottles when we're done? 80% end up in landfills, where they will sit for thousands of years, or in incinerators, where they are burned, releasing toxic pollution. The rest gets collected for recycling. I was curious about where the plastic bottles that I put in the recycling bins go. I found out that shiploads were being sent to India, so I went there. I will never forget riding over a hill outside Madras, where I came face-to-face -face with a mountain of plastic bottles from California. Now, real recycling would turn these bottles back into bottles. But that wasn't what was happening here. Instead, these bottles were slated to be downcycled, which means turning them into lower quality products that would just be chucked later. The parts that couldn't be downcycled were thrown away there, shipped all the way to India just to be dumped in someone else's backyard. If bottled water companies want to use mountains on their labels, it would be more accurate to show one of these mountains of plastic waste. Scaring us, seducing us, and misleading us. These strategies are all core parts of manufacturing demand. Once they've manufactured all this demand, creating a new multi-billion dollar market, they defend it by beating out the competition. But in this case, the competition is our basic human right to clean, safe drinking water. Pepsi's vice chairman publicly said, the biggest enemy is tap water. They want us to think it's dirty and bottled water is the best alternative. In many places, public water is polluted, thanks to polluting industries like the plastic bottle industry. 
And these bottled water guys are all too happy to offer their expensive solutions, which keep us hooked on their products. It is time we took back the tap. That starts with making a personal commitment to not buy or drink bottled water unless the water in your community is truly unhealthy. Yes, it takes a bit of foresight to grab a reusable bottle on the way out, but I think we can handle it. Then take the next step. Join a campaign that's working for real solutions, like demanding investment in clean tap water for all. In the U.S., tap water is underfunded by $24 billion, partly because people believe drinking water only comes from a bottle. Around the world, a billion people don't have access to clean water right now. Yet cities all over are spending millions of dollars to deal with all the plastic bottles we throw out. What if that money was spent improving our water systems, or better yet, preventing pollution to begin with? There are many more things we can do to solve this problem. Lobby your city officials to bring back drinking fountains. Work to ban the purchase of bottled water by your school, your organization, or entire city. This is a huge opportunity for millions of people to wake up and protect our wallets, our health, and the planet. The good news is it's already started. Bottled water sales have begun to drop while business is booming for safe, refillable water bottles. Yay! Restaurants are proudly serving tap, and people are choosing to pocket the hundreds or thousands of dollars they would otherwise be wasting on bottled water. Carrying bottled water is on its way to being as cool as smoking while pregnant. We know better now. The bottled water industry is getting worried because the jig is up. We are not buying into their manufactured demand anymore. We will choose our own demands, thank you very much, and we're demanding clean, safe water for all. Kid, what did you do for fun? So we'd go blueberry picking, for instance. Uh, just that's so cute. <laughs> but it's true. We grew watermelons, um, plantains. I found an old sign which was big enough for me to sit on. It made a great toboggan. It was very slick, very fast. <laughs> I had a few fish in my basket, and I looked up on this bluff, and here's this black bear sitting there watching me. If he starts chasing me, I'm going to. Keep throwing the fish out of my basket until he's gorged and he won't and he won't bother me. And what did you like to do for fun? You know, you go door to door, get a group of kids, and you play uh, lots of games, uh, hide and seek, just going out to the field and playing baseball. And we build these massive forts, you know, the kind that you can actually sit in and 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 play in, you know, with with our friends, and it was just really wonderful. So, what do you like to do for fun? Video games, definitely. I like to go on my phone, text, send email. My favorite thing to do in the world is definitely watching videos and playing video games. Those take up so much of my time. Three hours, or three to four hours a day. Same. Five hours straight. Just last week, I watched 23 episodes of a TV series in less than four days. I forget. I'm in a house. I have parents. I have a sister. I have a dog. I... 
Just think I'm in the video game, I completely get lost. I would die if I don't have my tablet. Whenever I feel upset, I'd play video games and I'd feel normal. It's really wonderful. When your daughters grow up, your great-great-grandkids, what do you think will happen if this trend continues? It's scary to think that they'll never have to leave the house. Cindy grew up uh, doing a lot of the things that I did and, and enjoyed, and I see what uh, my grandsons are doing today, and it's, uh, it's mind-boggling. By the time they have kids, it's going to be a really different environment. I actually feel a little sad because I feel like he's missing out on what's out there mm -hmm. in the beautiful world. special connection with nature. I think it's innate in all children, but needs to be nurtured. Our presidents praise America's magnificent national park system, they're not maintaining them. Bill Clinton, for example, spoke of how lucky he was to have Hot Springs National Park as a childhood playground. Yet he sat idle as that park's natural wonders and facilities deteriorated, and as the Park Service's maintenance backlog soared to $5 billion. Likewise, in his 2000 campaign, a khaki-clad George W. posed in the majestic Cascade Mountain Range. Wailing that parks were, quote, at the breaking point, he vowed to eliminate Clinton's backlog. Instead, he slashed the NPS budget, including a 40% cut for repairs of the very park he had used as a political prop. The maintenance backlog ballooned to nearly $9 billion under his presidency. Ranger George did make one fix, however, a PR fix. Bush operatives instructed park superintendents to make budget cuts, but not to call them cuts. Instead, they were to say that our parks were undergoing, quote, service-level adjustments. Under Obama, who speaks movingly of a childhood Greyhound bus trip with his family to see some of our parks, another 12% has been chopped from the NPS budget, bumping the deferred maintenance bill to a staggering $11.5 billion. To his credit, Obama has proposed a 2016 centennial budget for NPS, mitigating years of destructive underfunding and calling for a billion dollars to address the backlog. Good for him, but that still leaves a $10 billion shortfall, and the sour duo of Senator Mitch McConnell and Speaker John Boehner will oppose even that little increase for the maintenance of these invaluable public assets. This is Jim Hightower saying, our so-called leaders are literally stripping service out of the National Park Service and assuring that our national treasures will fall into acute disrepair. It's a bipartisan disgrace.
you've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, National Public Lands Day. Now, it is no secret that green space is vanishing, and this isn't just bad for the quote-unquote environment, it's bad for the mental and physical health of the public as well. Enjoying nature for nature's sake is lost on most people these days. For some of us, it's because we're creatures of habit, and for others, it's because the hamster wheel of capitalism sucks up almost all of our time. Well, this week, use National Public Lands Day as an excuse to take a breath and do something that's as good for you as it is for nature. Saturday, September 26th, is set aside as the nation's largest single-day volunteer effort for public lands. It's hosted by the National Environmental Educational Foundation, and signing up to volunteer at publiclandsday.org can even earn you a fee-free coupon to visit any federal site, giving you even more incentive to get out in nature. And for some public lands, that even includes accompanying passengers in a car. What started as three events and 700 volunteers 17 years ago has grown to over 2,000 events and more than 175,000 volunteers. Last year alone, National Public Lands Day volunteers removed 500 tons of trash, built and maintained 1,500 miles of trail, and contributed an estimated $18 million through the volunteer services to improve public lands across the country. And since, as we just heard, the government continues to slash critical funding to maintain these lands, it's all the more important that we come together to fill that gap while also pressuring Congress to get their priorities straight. This year's events include planting trees and shrubs, educational and recreational activities like kayaking, birding, and camping, and locale-specific events like the live, interactive, prehistoric cooking demonstration featuring the earth oven method of cooking at Poverty Point World Heritage Site in Louisiana. So grab friends and get to a national Public Lands Day event in your area. The best way to make sure people are personally invested in maintaining public green spaces is to take them out to those spaces for relaxing, fun activities. Make it an annual thing and challenge others to do the same. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofaleft.com. If the positive impact that nature and the environment have on society matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about National Public Lands Day via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. What are we aiming for as societies? What does success look like? This question is very, impor- very important and pertinent, more important than ever before, as, as we've heard James allude to, because of the situation we face in terms of environmental challenges. It's becoming painfully clear that the way our economy treats the planet cannot continue and that we need to change something quite radically. And at times of change, that's the time when we need to start thinking about what, we really, what, what, what direction we want to go in, what do we really want to go for. So, what does success look like? Well... The usual answer is something a bit like this. More money, an ever-growing economy that just goes round and round. 
The idea is that if we have more money in a growing economy, then that will mean we can have better lives, we'll have more jobs, social stability, secure pensions, etc., etc. The list goes on. So the idea is that where we want to get to is growth. But if, we're, if that's where we want to go to, then we're more likely to run into a brick wall. This graph helps explain why. So on the, on the um, vertical axis to the left, you've got GDP per capita. The idea being that sort of countries always want to go up that axis, get higher and higher levels of GDP. And on the horizontal axis, you've got ecological footprint, um, the pressure that each country puts on the planet per capita. Obviously, as we move further and further to the right on that, we're causing more and more problems. Now, if we all live like people do in the US, which is somewhere towards the right of there, or indeed many other Western countries, then we'd be needing four, five planets even to sustain us. That's simply not possible. And as countries try harder and harder to move further up that, with more and more economic growth, they end up inevitably shifting, creeping to the right. That's the problem that we face. And technology, some people say, will help us get there. But um, economists such as Tim Jackson and many others have done the maths, and it would require nothing short of a miracle to be able to entirely decouple our environmental impact from GDP growth. Well, luckily, we're not as simple as that. We don't think that GDP growth, more and more money, is all we need in the world. Our intuitive vision of success is a little bit more complex than that. Ever since biblical times, we've understood that uh, being obsessed with material possessions is, is, is not good for us, to put it simply. Um, we understand that there is more to life than money. And that's something that, sort of, that we need to, and we understand that at the individual level. And what we need is to understand that that also applies at societal level. Now, that's beginning to happen. A lot of countries around the world, um, the UK included, have started measuring a broader sense of progress. Um, in a lot of places, it's called well-being. And this sense of progress recognizes that other things other than material possessions are important to us. Health, social relationships, uh, sense of purpose, just to name a few. As we start to measure this, we can start thinking about how policies can be aimed to increase that, even if they don't necessarily increase economic growth. This graph... In this graph, I've replaced GDP per capita with an indicator of well-being called happy life years. This measures people's life expectancy, how long people live in a country, and, and, uh, and combined with their self-reported experience of life. Now, obviously, if you get higher up there, you're talking about having longer, happier lives. And we want to keep on the left-hand side of the axis. Now, there is a relationship between happy life years and ecological footprint, but it's not nearly as constrained as the one we saw in the previous graph. You can move to the top left of this graph. You can have higher life year, happy life years for a lower ecological footprint. The question is, how do we do it? And in the remainder of this presentation, I'm going to give you a picture of three big-picture solutions that are win-win solutions that will increase our well-being and reduce our environmental impact, a manifesto for sustainable well-being for all. In the 1930s, the British economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that by around now, we'd all be working about 15 hours a week. He thought that as we invented technologies and machines to make us more productive and make us more efficient at work, we would work less. If you could do a day's work in three hours, that's what we would do. And then you'd take the rest of the day for leisure. He wasn't completely wrong, of course. Um, we did invent lots of machines that can do our work for us. One only needs to go to the supermarket and see the self-service checkouts to see that in action. But the result hasn't necessarily mean, meant that we've worked less. So we've carried on working just as much, and we've just produced more. In the UK, one in five people are overworked, working more than 45 hours a week. These people have lower levels of happiness and higher levels of anxiety. Some of you might be amongst them. 
I know I am sometimes. <laughs> Um, and, at the sa- and at the same time, one in two- ten people are underworked, either unemployed entirely or working part-time involuntarily. This seems like we've missed the point. La- technology was supposed to free us from, from labour, but actually what's happened is some of us are still working just as hard, whilst others have been ejected into unemployment. Something's not quite right here. Um, now... Uh, and some of those people who've been ejected into unemployment are probably the people who used to work in the airport che- in the um, supermarket checkouts that are no longer needed, or the people in the airport check-ins that are no longer needed, or any of the other industries which have been more and more automised. Computers, machines have replaced us, but they've actually meant that we've been thrust, thrust into unemployment rather than into leisure time. We believe that if you reduce working time across the board, but particularly longer working hours, we will see an improvement in well-being across the board and reduce levels of unemployment. Reduce, we'd be able to redistribute work. We'd also be able to see lots of other good things. For example, reductions in gender inequality as men have more time to put into childcare. More time would be able to be spent into civic participation, civil participation. And we'll be able to live slower. Be able to, for example, cook instead of buying ready-made meals. Repair and make things rather than buying them ready off the shelves. And, and simply have more meaningful leisure activities rather than returning home at the end of the day exhausted and slumping in front of the television. Now, all these kinds of shifts, ah, it's important to mention. Some people might be concerned that if, if we work less, then we'll produce less of the things that are important to our well-being. There'd be less of the things that we really matter to us. But I'm not sure if that's entirely true. One in four people in the UK say that they don't believe that what they do at their job is worthwhile. Some of those people might be right. Perhaps some of the people who make and sell clothes that just sit in the back of wardrobes unused with the tag still on, or make and sell smartphones to replace smartphones from the previous year, which are just about the same. Maybe they aren't contributing that much to the economy. Maybe the people who, who spend their lives persuading us to buy one smartphone as, to, as opposed to another, or one item of clothing as opposed to another, aren't contributing that much to well-being. But they are contributing to our environmental impact. Reducing working hours is about trimming that fluff economy so that we can live well within environmental limits. Now, what can we do to achieve that? There's many things that we can talk about. For example, um, businesses could be having more incentives from the tax system to hire people part-time as opposed to full-time. People need to be able to feel free to ask for part-time work rather um, rather than full-time without being concerned that they might lose their job as a result. And we need restrictions at the top end so that people aren't allowed to work ridiculous hours, as indeed that is the case in most of Europe. And of course, we do need some shifts in thinking as well. And that brings me to the next thing. Because, of course, a lot of people work long hours because they believe that that will, that will give them the money they want to, to pursue more and more consumption. For example, having a few more watches in their collection. This belief that more and more money is, is what we want in life is called materialism. And it's grown. In the 1970s, this is, a, this is a based on data from the USA, students in the USA when they enter college, Um, Two out of five people believed that it was very important to be very well off financially. By the 1980s, that had increased to four out of five. Meanwhile, just for contrast, the proportion of those people who felt that it was important to develop a meaningful philosophy of life decreased from four four out of five to two out of five. Now, psychologists know that this increasing materialism is bad for us in many ways. It's it's bad for our well-being. It increases levels of depression. It leads to more addictions less pro-social behaviour, for example, volunteering, and people caring less about the environment. And there have been all sorts of exciting experiments which have demonstrated this. What can we do about it? Now, actually, in a lot of countries, there are some movements towards trying to tackle materialism. 
Um, for example, in Sweden, Norway and Quebec, there are bans against advertising to children. In Montpellier, in France, in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, there are no, there are no um, advertising in public places. Aside from that, there are other things we can think about. For example, um, if we had a stronger social security net, then people would be less concerned, less worried about the future, and less feel the need to hoard money for a rainy day. If we had more time, as I discussed previously, we'd be able to devote more of our time to leisure activities which give us meaning. And, and I think this will bring me on to the next thing, we need to think about the distribution of wealth. Because as long as there are people who are earning a lot more than us and consuming a lot more, we'll always be looking at them and thinking, maybe that life's a little bit better. So we do need a fairer economy. We've all heard the data recently. 85, the 85 richest people in the world have as much wealth as the bottom half of the world's population. That's 85 people having as much wealth as around 3.5 billion people. As well as this being just woefully unjust, it's woefully wasteful. In economic terms, anyone who's studied economics will have learned the term of diminishing returns. The idea that, as, uh, that £10 for the average Joe is worth a lot more than £10 for a billionaire. And yet, our economy continues to give the £10 to the billionaire. Well-being has confirmed this, this, this pattern. We know from well-being data that as you move up the income distribution, the in increases in well-being begin to diminish, they begin to decline, such that as you get higher and higher up there, it doesn't really make much difference whether you have um, a year, sorry, £50,000 a year or £100,000 or £200,000. Now, this kind of inequality is, is, is down to all sorts of reasons. Now, one thing we can start, start thinking about is about the tax system, and that's a sort of fairly easy place to start. You might be surprised to hear this, but actually in the UK we have a regressive t tax system. People on lower incomes pay more of a greater proportion of their income than people on the richer incomes. Of course, I'm not talking just about income tax here, I'm talking about sales taxes such as VAT and the fact that our capital taxes are very low. So let's start from that. Let's have a tax system which actually is progressive rather than regressive. But we need to go a little bit further than that. Does it really make sense that a CEO has, uh, can have a salary of $200,000 an hour? Does it really make sense that we believe, do we really believe that he works as hard in one hour or produces as much good for society in one hour as a nurse does, for example, in four years? I think we all recognize that there are differences in what businesses, what different uh, people contribute in their, in their job. But such an extreme ratio is ridiculous. Many companies already talk about pay ratios. Many companies already have pay ratios where the CEO can only earn a certain amount more than people, than the lowest paid members of staff, such as the cleaners. This could be the norm. Wealth inequality is even more absurd. The economist Thomas Piketty has explained how and has warned us that we're returning to a Victorian age where you can make more money by just sitting idly on, a, on capital, on, on, on property, and waiting for rents to come in than if you actually did any work. We need to think about, we need to think about property. As a, property is a big part of this, of course. We need to think about property in a different way. Property isn't an investment, isn't a way to make money. It should be a place to live. And we can, do, we, can, we can think about laws which will help us achieve that. At the moment, in many cities in the UK and beyond, there's a housing crisis where people don't have places they can live and they can afford to live in that are near to places where they can work. Regulations about what we do about property will help tackle the housing crisis and will also reduce wealth inequality. So, long working hours, materialism, inequality. The three problems are linked. Um, and we've seen some different ideas about how we can tackle each of them, whether they're directives at the EU level 
or, 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 or rules or, or, or bans on advertising in different places such as Sao Paulo in Sweden or pay ratios that are taking place in companies, many major companies that are already recognizing that inequality in wealth is, 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 not, is not what they want to aim for. We need to bring these things together. Today, I think we're going to hear a lot of amazing stories at the individual level about people who are pioneers and changing their lifestyles to achieve sustainable well-being. These are all great because they show us what we can do. But we also need to bear in mind that we, need, that we all need to be doing this. This needs to be for society as a whole, not just those who are brave enough to try it. And for that to happen, political leaders need to also recognise that this better vision is possible and that we can live good lives without destroying the planet. Our job is to show them that it is possible. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I wanted to comment on the idea of victimless crimes. I find this, this idea to be a little ridiculous, and I've heard it discussed before. I've, I've read about this on the Internet. I've debated people on the Internet about it, uh, almost all libertarians. And the, the thing about it is, is that the law is in constant conundrum over who is a victim, who has standing in the court. And so when you say that oh, we're, we're only going to enforce crimes that have a victim, you're going to end up right back in the same spot that you are now. You start with a blank slate, and, and laws will just keep being created. I've said it before, and I'll say it again here. Laws are created in response to something. If you don't enforce the so-called victimless crime of running a stop sign, then you're going to have more victims. So what is a victimless crime? A victimless crime is usually trying to prevent a victim. So it, it makes no sense to, to say that uh, we're going to tear the whole system down and start all over again, and at the end of the day, all we're going to end up with is the same thing, except the war on drugs will be gone and drugs will be legal and, and, and prostitution will be legal. Well, wouldn't it be easier just to try and get those changes done within the system that we're in now that just seems that, that that's a it's a little bit of a colossal waste of time to to advocate for, for the so-called non-enforcing of victimless crimes at what point does someone become a victim you still have to answer that question just saying it doesn't that doesn't do anything that that's not real world it's a it's a fantasy and, and a not a very good one at that anyway jay that's what i uh that's why i thought about it have a good one Hi, Jay. This is uh, Nathan Evanstone from Dixfield, New York. I, I, I'm a little late calling in on it, but I'm just calling on the libertarian thing. Because there's one thing that I believe in that actually made me a libertarian years ago. Um, and it is that idea that you have the right to do whatever you want as long as you do not violate another person's right to do whatever they want. Which is a fundamentally good concept, but uh, what I think... The problem on the libertarian end is that for the conservative libertarians, the, the, the libertarians that we see today, like the people who follow Rand Paul, read Ayn Rand and stuff, they sort of ignore that second half 
they hear that you have the right to do whatever you want part, but the part about not violating another person's right to do whatever they want gets ignored. So what they fail to recognize is that there's a negotiation of rights. So let me make it simple for you. Let's say that I live in Colorado and I live in an apartment place, in an apartment complex with shared walls and shared vents and stuff like that. And it's Colorado and I want to enjoy my pot, but I happen to have a neighbor who doesn't like it, doesn't like the smell, doesn't want to be exposed to it. My right to enjoy marijuana ends where my neighbor's right to not be exposed to it begins. And that's what I mean by a negotiation of rights. I don't have the right to force my neighbor to be exposed to it just because I want to enjoy it. So we would have to negotiate something there, whether it happens through communication or through some other way. A negotiation of rights would have to occur in that situation. And that's sort of what I think a lot of the right-wing libertarians tend to forget when it comes to um, rights and things like that. So, yeah, that's it. That's all I have. Um, thanks again. Um, I would love to hear the show about the voicemail on the most recent episode about economics and property and stuff like that. that was, those would be some awesome shows. That would be great. And uh, thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So today, I want to add a little bit to the topic of today's episode, lifestyle, I guess you know, for lack of a better word, you know, culture and its relationship with the environment and so on. And I, I want to talk about how we talk about this issue because it's a very touchy subject. And so there are a few sort of fundamental principles that I, I basically believe in. And the, the first is actually totally universal, you know, whether you're talking about this or anything else with anyone that you don't totally agree with, uh, if you're trying to convince someone of anything, I think it's really important to try to meet them where they are, wherever that is. If you're trying to convince someone of something and there's no connection between their values and what you're trying to promote, it's incredibly difficult to pull someone over. And so if you can meet them where they are and then find the path for them, you know, here's what you value now, let me show you how what you value can be affected by what I'm talking about. Then you can kind of lead them down that path. So for instance, with, you know, lifestyle and the environment and, and all of that, you know, if, if you're talking to someone who simply doesn't care about the environment, well, then encouraging them to drive their car less isn't going to resonate. They're not going to care, but maybe they care about their finances. And so you say, okay, if you drive less, it'll save you a lot of money, then maybe they're at least listening at that point. You've, you've piqued their interest. You, know, if you can save the money. Well, then, okay, maybe they'll hear you out and you can take them down that particular line of reasoning. And so beyond that, you know, besides meeting people where they are in general, like more specific to, to this issue, like I said, because it's a touchy subject, it's actually incredibly difficult to have this conversation without seeming rude or preachy or anything along those lines. And so it's really easier to just 
demonstrate what you're talking about. You know, the old be the change you wish to see in the world concept, you know, encourage better living through demonstration. If you can just live the way you think other people should live and do it in a way so that other people can see all the benefits you're enjoying from living in this other way, then they may just adopt your style without you having to ever say anything about it. And then lastly, you know, if you do get into a conversation, you want to talk about this subject, I think it's really important to promote a positive vision rather than condemning what you see as a negative status quo. So rather than telling people, you know, you should drive less because it's bad for the environment, say, hey, you know, I started riding my bike to work and I feel so much better. I, I like being outside. I like getting a little bit of exercise. I like not spending as much on gas. And, you know, saving the environment at that point is, you know, it's a side benefit. But you, you talk about the positives rather than the negatives. And so, so like, that's kind of the basic outline of how I understand a good way to go about having this sort of conversation. Now, uh, Scott from Sweden wrote in after the last time I asked people to comment on what changes they had made in their lives uh, that made them happier. And so he wrote in, described how he actually moved from the U.S. to Sweden. Uh, he was following the person who would become his wife. And, you know, then he talked about how they had built this nearly carbon neutral life there and all of the happiness that that brought him by just changing his lifestyle in that way. And then here's what he had to say about uh, visiting his friends and family back in the States. He says, the few times I am in the States and see how quickly and readily even my own college graduate siblings and cousins burn through fuel and other resources, making token efforts at best to do something green is appalling. Characteristically, they seem unable to think in terms of eco-consequences of their own actions. Time-saving matters more. Cost-savings matter more. Convenience matters more. Trends matter more. I've discussed with them letting shopping or driving errands pile up to a critical mass before driving a fossil fuel car, no matter how high the miles per gallon, and they look at me as if I'm talking Area 51 JFK UFO babble. It's nothing to any American I know back home to drive miles for a single item that could be left out of a meal. So that's pretty standard, I, I think. My, that's my impression. That's sort of the normal way Americans live. And that's probably the normal reaction you're going to get if you suggest that another way of living may be better in more ways than one. Not just for the environment, but hey, it's bad for your health to be in the car that much. It's bad for your mental health to be in traffic that long and so on and so on. And so with all of that in mind as, as sort of my understanding of how this stuff basically works and how these conversations very often go, I'm, I'm just really curious, has anyone either given or received advice I, I guess on changing lifestyle and culture, you know, the way we're talking about it here, or maybe anything else, if something else comes to mind, have you given or received advice that went well? How, how, and then how did that go? If it went well, what made that work? Because if there is some, you know, secret insights that is, you know, beyond my current understanding, I would love to hear it. 
So again, you can either record a message and email it to me or dial in on that voicemail number 202-999-3991. I'd love to hear from you. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past